This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Carmen Maria Machado, author of the short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties, which was a finalist for the National Book Award. Machado's writing has appeared in The New Yorker, Tin House, NPR, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, among other places. Her body in other parties includes eight stories, many which sway between psychological realism and fabulism within the same narrative. The stories all focus on women's lives and highlight issues of same-sex domestic violence, the limits of women's agency, body image, sexual desire, women's disappearances, and the media's obsession with violence against women. The first story of the book, The Husband Stitch, features a protagonist and narrator who wears a green ribbon around her neck that she never allows her husband to touch. It is the topic of the first few questions in the interview, beginning with the impetus of Machado to marry the realistic with the surreal in her work. Every writer is different, and obviously there are writers for whom something like secondary world fantasy or like there's sort of more of the world is constructed out of your imagination is like more interesting to them. And I think ultimately like all fiction is about human. It is about reality. Like, you know, if you get down to the nitty gritty of like, I don't know, like game of Thrones or the song of ice and fire books, like they're still about like humanity. Right. And like human choices and foibles and (laughs) people just like making really weird choices and decisions, you know, but for me, like the sort of liminal fantasy where there's like these sort of heavy realistic elements or like familiar elements and then this sort of fantastic like intrusion on the narrative is is to me the most interesting. And that's both as a writer and as a reader. Like that's what I just sort of like to read. I mean, that story is it's weird because in some ways that story is like very basically realist until like the very end, right? When her head falls off. You know, before that, like you know, you could take the ribbon out and it'd just be like a story about a woman, right? Um, yeah. So I felt like the sort of the magical intrusion into that realism. I don't know. It was just the way that it made sense to me to tell that story. And I feel like with all my stories, like that's just how I want, they want to be told. Like, I think there are other ways to tell stories, but this is just the one that like makes the most sense to me in terms of like my projects and like what I want to be sort of saying. So with the story, the husband stitch, um, you know, I thought what was so interesting about (laughs) it was that, you know, they have this happy marriage, basically, and they raise a son and they met when they were young. And she has this one thing that's sort of out of out of reach for him. I mean, she's given him everything. And at the mm-hmm. very end, their son is gone and they're back alone together. And y- you get this sense that maybe she's been waiting their whole marriage for this. But sh- she reminds me of the giving tree. Like what you know, mm. are you going to take this from me? Like, do you really need to to touch this and untie this so badly? And he gets this like sexual arousal at the thought of doing it. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about that sort of pushing the boundaries in a relationship so far or that sense of insatiability to know everything about your partner and what the results can be. Yeah, it's so funny that you bring up the giving tree because I have this really clear memory of being like a kid and reading that book and I there was this like children's librarian um that I because I I volunteered at our local library and so we were like good friends and she was like I really hate that book and I was like why it's so sad and she was like 
because it's just all about this like woman who's just like giving and giving and giving and giving and giving until she's nothing. <laughs> and it was like this really intense, like proto, not proto feminist. It was a feminist lesson, but I was getting it and I was like, not ready for it. I was like, I don't know, you know? Um, but in retrospect, of course it was very, um, that was very true. Um, yeah, I mean, I sort of feel like that idea, I mean, the idea of that story, like the sort of the, <clears throat> the, the idea that kind of happened for me as I was writing it was I was thinking about not just male entitlement, but also sort of quote unquote, like good guy male entitlement. Like I was really interested in like masculinity and, and like, so I, I wanted at the end of the story for it to be almost instinctual on his part. Um, and she even sort of like, like says like, you know, he's not a bad man. Like I, I, I could have been very unlucky. There's all kinds of terrible men I could have met. Like he's probably the best I could have hoped for. Yeah. And I, so, so I sort of wanted that like sort of innocuous entitlement to be the villain in that story um, as opposed to sort of a more like Machiavellian, like, you know, snidely whiplash, like, you know, tinting your fingers and like tying damsels to railroad tracks. Like, I feel like the subtlety of sexism is like way more interesting to me um, than it's sort of more obvious iterations. Um, so, yeah, so that, I mean, I think that was kind of why I sort of chose that male, I chose the husband to sort of be the way he was. Um, I wanted that sort of subtle element of it. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Carmen Maria Machado, author of the short story collection, Her Body in Other Parties. Well, most of the stories in your collection have some element of a relationship that is suffering. There's some kind of wound that's being exposed, whether it's um, to, to women who their lovers and amazingly they get pregnant and have a baby these two women and it's an abusive relationship between them so that's you know one example of where people are suffering another could be just um, someone who's having a hard time with her own body image and fighting kind of with her daughter about maybe getting her stomach tucked so I'm just interested about your interest in relationships that are suffering and and the specific wounds that you want to explore in people for me i was sort of drawn to those places where people people are either like i feel like those are a little different because i think with the um with eight bites the story with the mother and the daughter sort of having this argument over like weight loss surgery and the daughter is sort of saying like oh like if you hate your body so you want to change it then you must hate my body because my body's like your body um <clears throat> and i feel like that story is about the ways in which we or one, one could like hurt, like how you sort of hurt other people in this way that's very like well, not well intentioned, but like, it's like you are trying to sort of fix your own thoughts or something and in the process you're really like hurting somebody else. So I feel like that story is like just sad in that sense. And I think in the story mothers where these two women have this child and like they're in this sort of abusive relationship, like I was really interested in Story, I mean, stories about abuse and domestic, in, in, uh, domestic violence and same-sex relationships are very interesting to me. And so I wanted to see it, but then I also wanted to be from the perspective of this woman who's, like, trying to reconcile this thing that she cannot even begin to reconcile. And in that case, it's a little less – it's not well-intentioned. It's just sort of, like, somebody trying to, like, survive and, like, hang on, um, like, on these sort of very frayed edge of her own psyche. 
so yeah so I feel like they were just sort of really different but I mean I always think that relationships that are dissolving in really dramatic ways is like one of our more interesting <laughs> things that we sort of have to offer in art I think and it very much reflects real life I know one day I'll write a story with like a good relationship in it probably um but I don't I haven't done it yet so we'll see so with with the story mothers and the idea you were saying you're interested in domestic violence in same-sex relationships and I feel like it's not something that society talks about so I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your interest in this yeah I mean it's a topic that interests me because it's something that I have sort of I've lived through when I was sort of in the early stages of trying to like get everything back together in my life I was sort of looking for narratives that spoke to that experience and I found almost none of them like I found a couple of essays I found like sort of one book, <laughs> like I found a bunch of like academic texts from like the 80s and the 90s. It's like a topic that for, for reasons I don't fully understand this really, or just re- really does not exist uh, in the sort of larger narrative. And I think it's because of a few reasons. I think it's because queer narratives are already sort of like not as common. I mean, it's they're getting more common luckily, but um, especially trying to get any kind of historical information, like trying to sort of pin down like queerness in history is like very, very difficult. Um, and then you add to that the fact that like narratives about domestic violence are like just a little less also harder to find. And so I think the combination makes this narrative sort of doubly difficult. And I wrote that story and also I'm writing a memoir, like my next book from Grey Wolf is a memoir about this topic. But yeah, like I'm writing it because it was a story I never saw. And so I wanted to, I wanted, it's like, you know, I tell my students all the time, like, if there's a story you want to see in the world that you don't see it, you should write it. Like, that's right. <laughs> um, like, write the stuff that you're like, I hunger for that, but it doesn't exist. So, yeah. So, so I mean, that's sort of why I, I decided to do that. Um, yeah, so it's a very personal place. But I also wanted, like, you know, the thing about fiction is, like, even when you're writing from a personal place, like, you still have this sort of obligation to, like, create this story for a reader like it's not fit your therapy it's like a place for narrative to sort of happen so that was you know that was challenging and that story took me a really long time to write um I actually started it I basically wrote that whole story through the scene in the middle where she's sort of thinking about that house like the fictional house that they're in or that they would have been in um and then I stopped like right after that was over and I didn't finish the story for like two years um because I didn't really know how it ended it took me getting through some shit to like get to the other side to be like, Oh, like that's, that's how that story ends. But I had to like figure that out. So yeah. So, I mean, I think it's one of the, I mean, all my stories have like heavy autobiographical elements in the sense that they come from a thing that I think about a lot, which has something to do with like the life that I've lived or like experiences that I've had. Um, That story is particularly autobiographical. Yeah. But it was like really important to me to sort of make, to put it into the world. And I've gotten like messages from, from various people who have said like that it's because they they were looking for a narrative like that or that it spoke to them for that reason so I mean I think when like narratives don't exist it's like a real disservice to like people you know who are looking for that narrative for either not comfort necessarily but like a recognition of their own experience um and so yeah so I'm like I'm really glad that I'm able to like write about it in this way that I think speaks to people's experiences You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Carmen Maria Machado, author of the short story collection, Her Body in Other Parties. So one of the things that you mentioned, too, that you write about are the things that you're interested in and that you've been through. And, you know, body image is something that comes up 
in some of these stories. I mean, particularly in the story about um, the woman getting her stomach stapled, which is called Eight Bites. In Eight Bites, uh, this woman has three sisters, and all of her sisters have been through this surgery as well. She basically decides for herself that she wants to do this. I mean, I didn't get the sense that she was forced or it wasn't because of a love interest or anything. She just wanted to do this and had a hard time with her daughter. But obviously it was the sacrifices you have to make when you do something like this. So I'm just interested a little bit more about the genesis of the idea for this story. And then the thematic issue of like women physically disappearing. So the genesis of the story is that I, I mean, I am a fat woman. Like, I come from a family of, like, larger women, many of whom have had weight reduction surgeries of various kinds, um, including my own mother. You know, like, I've been wanting to write about fatness and about women's relationships with each other, especially mothers and daughters, and, like, thinking about bodies. Um, and it was hard because at first I was trying to write the story from the daughter's perspective, and I was like, no, I don't think that's the right perspective. I kind of want the daughter to be this, like, very absent sort of voice off stage. Um, and I want to write from the mother's perspective. So, like, it was coming from this very, like, emotional, personal place, you know, while also including things like fat ghosts that, you know, come back to haunt her um, after the surgery, the ghost of her own body. It actually also, it's, you can't, it's hard to tell unless you look for it. But initially, I actually thought that this was a retelling of The Little Mermaid. It's not anymore, really. Like, there's just some little leftover scraps in there. But, like, initially, there was, like, a sort of... The way the structure sort of worked, and I had various, like, sort of characters, like the Pomeranian... Like, Dr. Yu was Ursula, and, like, the Pomeranians were, like, Flotsam and Jetsam. But... And and ultimately, that's not what it is. Like, you would never know that unless you were looking for it. Um, But, yeah, so, I don't know. I just really wanted to write about this thing that I was thinking about. But also, like, sometimes when you're writing from an autobiographical place, like it's really helpful to like invert the perspective. So like it was, it did not start, it was not useful to me to write from the doctor's perspective. So it's like, I'm living in that and I don't, I don't want to like write about that. I sort of want to imagine what it would be like from the mother's perspective. Um, and that was sort of the key to like unlocking that story for me. I think I, I had this idea, like what does it mean to be like haunted by your own body? Like if you lose something, like, you know, how does it come back to you? How might it come back to you? And I also was really interested in like, I mean, in this collection, like women are being disappeared in all kinds of ways. And I think that thing about this story is the story where women are disappearing themselves, which I think is actually a, one of the worst sort of iterations of, you know, the patriarchy or whatever. Like this idea that like, not only are we going to like make women vanish in all kinds of forceful ways, we're also going to train them to do it to themselves. Yeah, which just is something that I think about a lot and really makes me feel terrible. So I wrote about it. Yeah, I mean, another story of disappearance, of women disappearing, you know, real women have bodies where um, basically it's in a fashion clothing company. These women have been sort of disappearing in society and they're ending up as sort of gossamer half bodies sewn into these items. Mm Can, can you talk a little bit about this? Because it's another way of women disappearing, but also the link to the clothing and their partial bodies and that sort of thing. I actually got the idea for that story because I was walking through, as when I was in grad school, I was walking through the Coralville Mall, uh, which is next to Iowa City. And uh, I walked past a store called Glam that had like black walls and these like big dresses and like a prom, one of those prom dress stores. And I was like, that would be a great setting for a story. 
Um, and so that story actually is interesting because it's like, it's old. Like I wrote that story really long ago, but it's been through a lot of revision because it's like, I keep having to like bring it up to snuff to my current prose level. So like I kind of had to rewrite like the entire thing when I was getting ready to get the book ready. Cause like the sentences were like five years ago, Carmen's sentences or four years ago or whatever. And I was like, Oh, I hate these sentences. They're really bad. So I had to like rewrite all of them. Um, but yeah, I was just really, and that's, in that case, it's sort of, you know, it's a kind of pandemic story, which is a, a kind of narrative that really interests me. Um, it's more of a fabulous pandemic as opposed to like my story inventory, which obviously um, is more of like a literal like sort of science fictional pandemic, like an actual illness. And this is more like women are turning into spirits or they're turning into these like weird half things and and yeah, in the story, like, a woman who works at the store discovers that, like, not only are, this is happening to women, which she knows about, but also they are sewing themselves. They're, like, taking themselves to the dresses to be sewn into the dresses. So there's some women who are in the dresses. There are some women who she talks about, like, she hears stories about, like, women, um, like, going into ATM machines and, like, voting machines and, like, and, like messing everything up because now they're spirits. So they have this, like, ability to kind of, like, sneak between the cracks and, like, do stuff, like, do, like digital terrorism or whatever, um, or like advocacy. I had, I had read at the time I'd been reading, um, and the band played on, which is a nonfiction book about the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And the thing about that, that story that's so interesting is like, you're sort of seeing like the slow burn of the illness and then final, and like the, some of the political sort of response. And so I don't know, I sort of was thinking about that. So I feel like there were like a lot of things that were kind of on my mind as I wrote this story. And yeah, and in this case, it's like women being disappeared against their will, but they also are like, you know, they're sort of taking that and like using it to their advantage in some ways. And some of them are just like sort of accepting it. So yeah, so it's like a different kind of disappearance. It's not like eight bites where it's like women are will do it to themselves. It's more like this will happen, but they will either like figure, they will figure it out, you know, in some way or another. Um, but also the despair that comes with like being disappeared against your will. So yeah, so again, it's like that same theme that's sort of inverted a little bit. And like, just I'm just thinking about it from a different angle. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Carmen Maria Machado, author of the short story collection, Her Body in Other Parties. Well, what, you know, one of the other big concerns or, or something that came, comes up a lot in your book is your book has a lot of sex in it. It has straight sex and gay sex. And there's also a lot of, of instances where people are voyeurs watching others have sex. And I'm just wondering about putting so much sex in. I mean, obviously, that's probably something that's also on your mind that you think about. But um, it, it's, it's hard to write about sex effectively. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about it. I had this teacher once who said to me, um, it was Alan Gerganis, or he was a teacher, he was doing a master class at Iowa, um, and he said, you should give your characters a role in the hay, they work hard, they deserve it, which I thought was, like, super funny, uh, and I, I sort of love this idea of, like, you know, characters are people, too, which, I mean, they're not, I mean, they are, but they're not, you know, they're, like, on paper, but, and they were, like, you know, give give, give them a chance to calm down a little bit, um, but, yeah, I mean, sex is, like, part of this sort of human experience, and, I, the last thing I wanted to do would be like a write like a very feminist book that was like I don't know sexually prudish or like I don't know like that's because that's also not how I feel about sex like I think sex is like an interesting part of the human experience it is fun to write it's interesting to it's good to read it's fun to read it's a useful way of like building character advancing plot yeah like I don't know it just like gives you a good opportunity to like do a lot of stuff on the page that's like really interesting 
Um, and so, yeah, so like majority of my stories have some sex, some have a lot of sex, and then there are all kinds of male writers who write about sex constantly, and uh, way fewer female writers, at least female writers who get sort of recognition for that. And so, yeah, I just wanted to be like, I can write, <laughs> I'm going to write like a sex scene, like the best of them, you know? But yeah, it's just really important to me, and it just makes sense. It's like, it's such a part of the human experience. It's, it'd, be weird, it'd be weird to have a book about bodies and gender and sexuality and not include sex scenes. It would be weird. It'd be like a weird choice. The longest story in here, which is called Especially Heinous, uh, 272 <laughs> views of Law and Order SVU. So you do it by seasons and episode names. So there are very small vignettes between these characters and the characters have doppelgangers and you know, one of the one of the investigators is seeing like all these girls with bells on and trying to solve murders. And it's also about their personal life. And you, you go season by season and it sort of has the language of of a procedural. So I'm wondering about your fascination maybe with procedurals and uh, this just if you can talk a little bit about this story. I'm, I'm a really interested in Law and Order SVU as like a cultural artifact. I feel like I feel like in the future, we're going to talk about it like we talk about MASH or something, where like it, it, it was sort of an encapsulation of a very specific sort of cultural mood. It's not as good as MASH, but it has that quality. And I'm very interested in, like, a procedural is sort of like a fairy tale, right? Where these, like, these sort of repeating elements that are, like, familiar, there's sort of these variations on... The repeating elements. The repeating elements tell us something about what we value or what we find interesting, um, and what sort of survives the retellings over and over. Yeah, and so yeah, so I mean that story came from a few places. Like I literally just had this idea where I was like, I wonder what it'd be like if I wrote a story that was like told using these like episode capsule descriptions. And actually, at first, I had taken the episode capsule descriptions from IMDb, like the actual ones. And I was like, I'll just like it was more like found art. I was gonna be like, I'm gonna like manipulate them to be weird. Um, and I tried that for the first, like maybe six or seven episodes. And then at some point it like splits off. Cause I was like, at some point I was like, this is too restrictive of a form. Like I don't, but what if I just use the titles? So actually all the titles of those episodes are the actual titles of the show. And I just sort of wrote from those titles through the 12 season. Now, obviously the show's been on for longer than that, but the 12 season is when uh, Stabler left the, sh- uh, the show, the character of Stabler. So I just decided to end it there. And also it changed showrunners. Like it's done all these, it's had all these changes in the, at that juncture of the show. So, but yeah, I don't know. I guess I just really was interested in like what that fairy tale procedural like has to say to us, like as a culture, like what we value and like why, why it matters, for example, that like the only Law and Order franchise that's currently on air is Law and Order SVU, which is like this one focused on rape and sexual violence. Like none of the other shows that survived this long. And what does that mean? And what do you, what do you hope people walk away from when they read that story? I think they, I hope that they walk away thinking about why media matters, because I think, you know, I mean, I watch a lot of like garbage TV as much as the next person, but also I think people sort of underestimate what it means when we consume certain kinds of media. And I think they don't realize like what that has to say about like our cultural priorities and interests. And I also hope they come away from it thinking about the narratives about sexual violence that we tell. That's, yeah, like, like why that matters. I just want people to be sort of more thoughtful about, even while, like, I know, I mean, I watch, I literally watch Law and Order, like, every, uh, less of you every week. Like, I have no, no judgment. Like, this, it's sort of a combination of, like, a critique and a love letter to the show, and it's sort of staying power. 
You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Carmen Maria Machado, author of the short story collection, Her Body in Other Parties. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So this is from The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. In this scene, uh, Eleanor, who's the protagonist of of the novel, is driving her way to Hill House, which is this haunted house where she's going to be staying. And she stops at an inn and is sort of looking at this scene next to this domestic scene where a couple and their little girl are having lunch and a little girl is refusing to drink milk from this cup. The only other people in the dining room were a family party, a mother and a father with a small boy and a girl, and they talked to one another softly and gently. And once the little girl turned and regarded Eleanor with with frank curiosity, and after a minute smiled. The lights from the stream below touched the ceiling and the polished tables and glanced along the little girl's curls, and the little girl's mother said, she wants her cup of stars. Eleanor looked up surprised. The little girl was sliding back in her chair, sullenly refusing her milk, while her father frowned and her brother giggled and her mother said calmly, she wants her cup of stars. Indeed, yes, Eleanor thought. Indeed, so do I. A cup of stars. Her little cup, the mother was explaining, smiling apologetically at the waitress, who was thunderstruck at the the mill's good country milk was not rich enough for the little girl. It has stars in the bottom. She always drinks her milk from it at home. She calls it her cup of stars because she can see the stars while she drinks her milk. The waitress nodded, unconvinced, and the mother told the little girl, you'll have your milk from your cup of stars tonight when we get home. But just for now, just to be a very good little girl, will you take a little milk from this glass? Don't do it, Eleanor told the little girl. Insist on your cup of stars. Once they have trapped you into being like everyone else, you will never see your cup of stars again. Don't do it. And the little girl glanced at her and smiled a little subtle, dimpling, wholly comprehending smile and shook her head stubbornly at the glass. Brave girl, Eleanor thought. Wise, brave girl. Do you want to talk about why you chose this? Yeah. So The Haunting of Hill House is one of my favorite novels. Um, It's not my favorite novel by Shirley Jackson. It's this slender, perfect haunted house story that is gorgeous and and really queer and really lovely. And Eleanor is this really interesting character who's like this um, uh, sort of fra- like emotionally kind of fragile woman who's sort of having a late blossoming because her mother has recently died, who she's been caring for her whole life. And so this is like the beginning of her process, like her journey to this place where she's sort of trying to like kind of reclaim her life. Um, and this scene is just so beautiful because like it's like her and this little girl. And she's sort of telling this girl, like, don't don't do what I did. Like, do, you know, take take seize control of your own life. Um, and it's this weird because it's like she's just witnessing this domestic scene. The little girl obviously has no idea what she's talking about. But like Eleanor is just like, you have to like live your life. Like she's sort of making this impassioned plea to the little girl. Um, and I love the metaphor of the cup of stars. This idea of like a thing that you must demand for your for your own life that you shouldn't compromise on. Um, so yeah, that scene has always just like struck me as like gorgeous and thematically resident and just really special. And I just, I don't know, I love it so much. Can you read a passage that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed sure. from the first draft? I'm going to write, read actually the scene from The Resident, which is actually the scene that of the girl sleepwalking. This scene took me forever to get to. Like I... When I, when I was writing, when I was writing, finishing my edits for this book, my editor was sort of like, the one story that really needs work is 
um, the resident, it like wasn't, it like wasn't right. It like wasn't, it wasn't done. Uh, it took me just a while to kind of like find the scene um, and realize that it was sort of the heart of the story. So in the scene, the protagonist is having a memory of being a Girl Scout as a, so as a young woman and she sleepwalked. I don't know how you, what the past tense of that is, but she, um, she's been sort of led out of the cabin or out of the tent by the girl, by other girls in her Girl Scout troop. And then she wakes up in the darkness. It was not very different from waking up in my grandmother's spare bedroom or on some finished basement floor surrounded by slumbering classmates. But unlike those moments where confusion was followed by drowsy recognition of a vacation or a sleepover, this disorientation did not resolve itself. For I had gone to sleep drunk on pleasure and warm in a cocoon of nylon, listening to the dry, tinny whispers of the girl around, girls around me in the cabin, a sound as soothing as the tide. But I awakened upright, freezing, surrounded by the kind of darkness insomnia I longed for, matte, consuming, oblivion. How could I have known that they'd seen? Around me was not the absence of sound, but the sound of absence, a voluptuous silence that pressed against my eardrums. Then a pulse of wind goaded the tree branches, and there was a groan, a whispery shimmer of leaves. I trembled. I wanted to look up for a moon or stars to tell me where I was, but I was rigid with terror. My body was so cold it felt like it was disappearing at the edges, like my shoreline was evaporating. It was the opposite of pleasure, which had pumped blood through me and warmed my body like the mammal I was. But here I was just skin, and then just muscle, and then merely bone. I felt like my spine was pulling slowly up into my skull, each vertebra click, click, clicking like a car slowly ascending a roller coaster's first hill. Then I was a hovering brain, and then a consciousness floating and fragile as a bubble, and then I was nothing. Anything else you want to say about that? It literally was like the last thing I wrote for this book because I, I didn't realize that this story was about this moment of her life. Um, and so for a long time, I was like referencing the stuff that happened to her as a girl without ever actually explaining it. And then I sort of in the final parts of editing, I was like, oh, 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 this is the scene. This is the scene that I've been trying to write for like, as it turns out, years. And yeah, and then I did. So it just took me a really long time to get to it. Where do you write? If I'm home, I write at my desk. Um, I'm very fussy about, I have to be like in a very sort of clean room with like my desk all kind of neat. If there's like papers everywhere, it's really disorganized. I can't write. Um, and if I'm away at a residency, which I do a lot, then I have to also like be at a desk and be at a writing space. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Oh my God. Um, the gym. <laughs> I, I run or I um I go get massages or I go to like for a walk or like I go, I play video games or I go to an art museum. Like there are a lot of things that I do that are like, where I just don't want to be <laughs> like facing my own work. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, my wife, who is also a writer. She's my first reader. Um, we share everything to everything. We are each other's first readers. And how have you dealt with rejection? Um, I mean, I think rejection is just part of the game at this point or part of the writing career of uh, the writing process. Um, I get tons of rejections. Like, I mean, I, my career has been going very well, but like, I still get turned, I guess I got rejected for something like a week ago. I, I had submitted a story to a magazine and they were like, no, sorry. So, I mean, I think it's, it's, I'm just at this point, I'm just like, well, it's like part of, I mean, I'm a little, dis I'll be bummed. I'll be like, oh, that sucks. Like I kind of was hoping that would work out, but you know, it is what it is. And what is your favorite word? <laughs> Liminal which I use way too much. <laughs> People tell me this. 
but it, it, it just captures a sort of quality uh, that I find very interesting and useful. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Carmen Maria Machado, author of the short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.